0: Hey, this is the first of the last batch of recordings from last year's ATX Television Festival. The best television festival in Austin, or anywhere. Uh, It really is fun. If you guys haven't been to ATX, what's stopping you? Uh, This year it is June 7th through 10th uh, in Austin. You can go to ATXFestival.com to get badges, Uh, They've already announced a whole bunch of awesome things for this year's lineup, including um, a whole thing, a whole conversation with Freeform about the sort of shows they're doing and uh, millennial programming. Uh, they got folks from Queen Sugar coming. They've got folks from Drunk History doing an interactive panel. Uh, The new uh, audience network Condor, based on uh, Three Days of the Condor, Uh, there's a TV show. And that's going to be there. Uh, American Woman, a whole bunch of really cool things. So that's the stuff that's already announced. There's even more great stuff coming. Once again, it is June 7th through 10th in Austin, uh, atxfestival.com to get badges, which do it.
1: Natalie Abrams, senior writer at Entertainment Weekly, and I love television. TV has this unique ability to make you feel like characters are speaking directly to you, going through the same experiences as you and helping you navigate those murky waters along the way. Shows are able to do that most of the time because writers are drawing from their own experiences, from heartbreak to death, dating, illnesses, missed opportunities. Writers are always encouraged to write what they know because that experience means they have a deep well to draw from. So we've gathered a great panel of writers and executive producers to get the scoop on the challenges of drawing from their own lives. So from the middleman, The Hundred and Lost, Javier Grillo (laughs) Marks-Watch. From How I Met Your Mother, The Goldbergs, and the upcoming Netflix comedy, Atypical, Rabia Rashid. From Life Unexpected, Bates Motel, and casual Liz Tiglar. And from Friday Night Lights, Parenthood, and Game of Silence, David Hudgens. So there are about a million semi-autobiographical shows, uh, lots of comedy specifically. Why do you think that is? Why does it lean more towards comedy than drama, you think?
2: Now? Um, well, I don't know. I, I, think, I, think, I think drama has to be, I don't know, I might be making a generalization, but um, drama has to be so big now. Um, I almost think in some ways comedy is the new drama in terms of uh, what, you know, I, I look at like a show I did, Life Unexpected. You know, however many years ago we did that, eight years ago, that was a drama. Now it would be like, oh, a foster kid gets a, a, you know, reunites with her parents who had like a one night stand in high school. It'd be like, for it to be a drama, it'd be like, and they're international spies, and they're on a bridge that's burning, and the world's about to end, and, you know, militias, come. I don't even know. Like, that just would never fly, I, I feel like, as a drama. So, for those of us who like those stories, um, you know, maybe, maybe we've moved into comedy, the dramedy, the kind of half hour drama format. Um, I don't know. That, that's at least my experience. But
3: I'm yeah. going to be selling bridge burning militia foster kid to NBC <laughs> this year. I don't you know what you're talking don't about. Don't take
4: that. <laughs> God, I, I think it's also because life is kind of hilarious, and and so when you are taking it from your own life, like I tried on like eight outfits this morning, and of course I picked the shortest dress, and I'm sitting in the lowest chair. <laughs> like, it's funny. Life is kind of just so when I do take things from. My own life, it just, my show is not, it's, it's sort of what you were saying, it's not, uh, the show that's coming out on Netflix, it's not what you would typically think of as a comedy, it's about a kid with autism. Um, but it's really funny. Hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? That's drawn from your own
1: experiences with your family, right?
4: It is so, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I have a family member who's on the spectrum, but also I know that the show is sort of about how no one's normal, and I definitely know that feeling. I have uh, a Pakistani dad and a white mom, and I grew up in northern Vermont, so no one was (laughs) like me. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it's more just the sort of theme of everybody feeling not normal is something I really, really connect with, especially now.
3: (laughs) You know, The the Middleman is a show about a superhero who fights... Zombie fish and Mexican wrestlers and uh, and and uh, vampire ventriloquist dummies, yeah. um, and and it's probably you know the most personal and and completely autobiographical thing I've ever written because I actually assiduously avoid writing about my life as much as possible. I was um, just saying that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and but you know when my friends back home watch it, they they say it's like we hung out with you for an hour. You know, and which is a credit to the writers on the show who were able to internalize kind of my worldview so quickly. But you know, the, the 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 show is really specifically not about maybe what I've lived, although the main character was a Latino nerd uh, or a Latina nerd. Um, but but it's really about how like you see the world. You know, and when when you're a showrunner, whether whether you like it or not, and it's usually more fun when you don't and you try to avoid it because then all sorts of crap comes out. But it's like being a showrunner is basically and being a show creator every show, the show, every episode of a show is a psychotherapist couch for you, you know, so whether you choose to write about your life specifically or not, all of your crap's going to come out because there's just so much pressure and your filter goes, the first thing to go is the filter. So, so, you know, with something like, like, like the middleman for me, it's like, no, I'm, I, you know, th- there is nothing in my life that indicates that I could be a guy who looks like Chris Evans and fights zombie trout. But at the same time, um, you know, the, 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 the way that those characters express themselves and the general absurdity of the world is, is about as close to how I see the world as anything that I've ever written, you know?
1: Yeah, I'm curious. I want to go back to Life Unexpected for a second here because that is drawn from your real life experience of, of being adopted. When you were creating that show, how, like, what was that? process like was it a little bit cathartic for you
2: um yeah I think it was um like retroactively cathartic which I guess is what catharsis is but but um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I when I when I pitched it you know I had I'd had gone on a show and and my agents had negotiated like a blind script deal which means you could write a pilot about something and maybe if you sell it they'll pay you and it was all very exciting and um I honestly didn't think it was drawn from my life at all like I just Kind of pitch this show and and a producing you know a director and producing partner came on board um, a producer Mary Beth Basil who ended up becoming a, a dear friend but um, it wasn't until literally we were like hiring writers after we had written the pilot shot the pilot we're hiring writers waiting to get a pickup and then in the middle of it she was like this is kind of about you. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then I realized, yeah, of course it's about me. Like, I'm an idiot. Um, because I was like, it's so narcissistic writing about yourself as if your story is so important. But I realized that it was, you know, it. my experience was not the same as the main character, um, Lux's experience played by Britt Robertson. It was, it was just... The unknown of who your parents are. You know, being an adopted kid, I think I, I think I always had this fantasy. I was, I was adopted. I was born in D.C. and, and it was. You know, 1975, and by the time I kind of understood that I was adopted, it was the 80s, and I was living in Dallas, and I was like, "What if Nancy Reagan is my birth mom?" And my parents were like, "She's not," and I was like, "But how do you know? Like, then who is?" And they're like, "We don't know," and I'm like, "Then it's Nancy Reagan. She's the only woman in D.C. We know." Um, and uh, you know, I was very adamant about this. Um, so I think it was—it's <laughs> not. But anyway, I think it was just this fantasy, and this is this unknown. And and honestly, and. Until I actually um, I mean, I kind of did it, I guess I did it right before life unexpected really started. I, I decided to just once Mary Beth was like, this is kind of about you, I was like, oh well, I guess I should just figure out who my birth parents are. So I figured it out and. It wasn't Nancy Reagan. Um,
3: was it Patty Davis?
2: And, no, it wasn't <laughs> Patty Davis. <laughs> but um, it, you know, it, it, the, the whole experience did end up being strangely cathartic, and I think um, you know, I think the fun of doing the show was was kind of discovering that, and then of course, just you know, even if even if you're not doing like big cathartic things, it's like just all the little. The little details that you put in are, 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 you know, someone's like, oh, that's our high school P teacher, oh, the, the, you know, it, it's just fun, and, and it, it's true, what you're saying, like, you can't help but kind of splay your guts out, because you're sitting in the writer's room, and it's like, you're not sitting in a writer's room talking about how great it's going, you're sitting in a writer's room being like, okay, here's the, like, terrible thing I did, and then next thing you know, that's an episode. <laughs>
1: Uh, David, for Parenthood, you drew uh, a lot of inspiration for Christina's breast cancer story uh, from your sister who passed in 2001. How difficult was that for
5: you? It was. Um, it was very difficult, actually. But we had uh, look. I don't have. A, I don't have a franchise on breast cancer. Um, uh, you know, there were several people in the writers' room who had experiences with it, including Kadam's, um, whose own wife was a survivor so jason and i had been talking for a couple of seasons about let's do a story about breast cancer you know boy that'll really get the viewers in that'll entertain people <laughs> um and so but I, I mean i'm being somewhat facetious but we did have long conversations about how do we tell the story where it doesn't you know depress the shit out of people and we decided we would do it with christina because we thought that character was the best character and that actress was the best actress to do the show to do the story and we decided you know I, and when we went to Monica Potter, by the way, she was all in she said, "I'll shave my head, I'll do whatever it takes um and we just started writing the story, and it became very uh, i mean catharsis is a good word, and you're in the room and talking about your personal experiences. Oh, yeah, that happened to me too so um we told the story, and it was eight episodes and um it's one of my it's one of my favorite you know stories from that show. I
1: want to go back to the middleman for a second because okay. we, we emailed before, uh, before the panel so I can get a couple of their stories. Uh, they were all very juicy, so I'm hoping to get them <laughs> all to talk about them throughout the panel. Javi, you mentioned that there was a specific storyline on the middleman that you had written that had to do with your experiences on Lost.
3: Yeah, um, so, you know, in, in apropos of the, the, the issue of catharsis, you know, the, the I want to foreground this by saying that when I think, and, and the episode of The Middleman we're showing tomorrow actually has to do with that story, which is just mortifying to me. Because I honestly, all it does, I don't feel cathartic, catharsis when I t- write about my shit. It just makes me more depressed that it happened. So it, it's just, it's, it's really just a, you know, which is why I try to do other things like write on the dark crystal, which is about, you know, a planet that's been invaded by turtle raptors from space. Um, but um, no, so, so I had, so I had quit lost after the second season and, you know, this lost in its first few seasons, it it ruled the world. It was like. We won an Emmy, and it was this extraordinary sort of experience that 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 is a really once in a lifetime thing. I, th- I think, um, if you're lucky enough to hit on that, and I had quit the show for a number of reasons, um, and and you know nobody nobody quits a show that it, you know it was it was an, a, an amicable enough parting, but nobody quits the most popular Emmy award winning show in television. Because gosh, we just peaked, and why not? <laughs> you know, I mean, so it was obviously something that was fraught, and you know, there, there was a story in that's told in the book *Bright Lights, Big City*, where where Jamie, I think his name's Jamie Conway, the, the character, the main character, had been dating a supermodel, and then or a model, and then after they broke up, she got signed and became a supermodel, and she was in billboards everywhere in the city. And I remember the the the, the years after I had worked on *Lost*. You know, it was a succession of shows that. When I went to, this is a long, I'm sorry, I'm being really tedious, but um, when I went from working, from, from working on Lost to working on Medium, it literally went from I love that show to my mom loves that show, you know? And, <laughs> and it was like every time a new season of Lost came out, it was like that feeling, oh, that Bright Lights, Big City feeling, oh, there's my supermodel ex-girlfriend, you know? So, so we needed to give Wendy Watson, the main character, a boyfriend, and, and, and it came up with this, with this story idea about a guy who'd been in a band, and he'd written a song for the band, and the song became the band's biggest hit, and then he had actually quit the band. Uh, before the song before the song hit so like he's sort of haunted by this thing where like people are constantly you know like like she googles him and finds out that he was like the, 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 the guitarist in this band and then like and and it was very specifically and very directly like a reflection on what it's like to leave the biggest thing like when Lost won the Emmy Leonard Dick, who was another producer on it, turns to me and goes, you know, the first line of your obituary just got written, you know? And I was like, oh, this is okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a good one. It's good, right? I'm, you know, he's not splitting the atom. I'm not Enrico Fermi, but it's nice to be one of the Emmy Award-winning producers of Lost. And then you lose that and it's like a relationship, it's like a, it's like a marriage, it's like a, it's like a divorce. And then when you're, when you're sort of looking at it, dominating the landscape, the pop culture landscape in such an ubiquitous way, the story was a reflection of that. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm looking at Tomorrow with Dread. I'm like, oh God, we're going to see that on a big screen now? Oh, Jesus Christ. And it does feel really narcissistic and it just actually, I'm not entirely certain that catharsis was reached. Maybe I didn't write it well enough.
2: Wait, can I ask you, can I ask you a question about season two Lost? Yeah. Were you there the day that the What About Brian writers came in to have cake? Do you remember that this? was season
3: three? I didn't. I didn't have that. I didn't. No, have that no,
2: two, two. two? Really?
3: No, that, I wasn't there when that happened. No. Oh, Okay. Because I, I, I heard, thought
2: maybe that's why you quit. I,
3: I've heard about the great cake incident. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that was sort of. Yeah, but no, I, I was not there for that. I, I believe that was the third season. There was
2: a cake. Oh, maybe it was the third season. Can I tell the cake yeah, incident? Please. There tell was the a cake tragic story. cake incident. So lost, you know, became lost, and we were on What About Brian, which. We, you know, the writers on that show, we loved it. Um, JJ obviously oversaw those shows, um, not as much. What about Brian? And um, we got told one day that it was JJ Abrams' birthday, and so we needed to come over to the Lost Writers' Room for cake. And we were like, "Oh my God, we're going to the Lost Writers' Room! This is the best day of our lives." We were like, "Maybe we'll have pen pals. Maybe it'll be like I'm Liz Tegelar. and maybe Liz Sarnoff could be my pen pal." And like, we we're so excited to go over there. We get there, we wait forever. JJ comes, we sing "Happy Birthday." The cake is out. And then JJ leaves. And then the last Writers were like, there's not really enough cake for what about Brian? You're going to have to go back to your writers' room with no cake. And we were like, what? <laughs> so we slunk back to our writers' room. They could just cut
3: smaller pieces That's of cake. That's
2: what we said. We were like, but you invited us. We were like, how yeah, is no, this if possible? If I had been
3: there, that I, you would have just cut the cake smaller. I thought maybe you drew smaller. the line. You
2: were like, you guys, that is not how you treat I people on t- a less <laughs> successful show. <laughs> Sure, they have a two, but <laughs> anyway, that was what happened.
3: I would have totes resigned in, pro- in, pro- in protest.
2: All right, well, I support
1: you. <laughs> so when drawing uh, from your own personal experiences, can you talk about walking sort of that fine line between fiction and reality? Uh, sure,
4: yeah. Um, well, sometimes people ask me, there's, there's five main characters in my show, and sometimes people ask me who, which one I am. And uh, I think I'm kind of all of them. And I think uh a lot of drawing that line is about sort of and and it is narcissistic, but finding yourself in those characters in, in different characters. Like there's a there's a sister who I didn't realize I was I was her, but I'm her. Like she she's always taking care of her brother, she's very protective. And uh I I have that role in my family to a certain extent. But I also have the sort of the dad is sort of this uh this playful Dorky goofball, and I have that. Like it, but but they're very specific people, and I think I think that I think a lot of it is not being literal with my experiences, but being sort of soulful about you know where those characters come from.
5: I, I struggled a lot um, with the character of Tim Riggins on Friday Night Lights because I am so sexy in my personal life, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> I was really worried that 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 Taylor wouldn't be able to convey that on screen. <laughs> um, no, I'm I'm obviously kidding. Uh, yeah, it was very cathartic. Uh, Have
2: to be it, so miscast. It, but,
5: you know what? What I find about what I find about um, the line between fiction and reality is a lot of times for me, it's it's it's. Um, it 's unintentional or maybe it's subconscious or whatever i 'll find that i 'm writing a story or i 'm writing a character, and i 'll realize maybe you know sometimes when i 'm in post i 'm like, holy shit, this happened to me, or this has come out of my life i'd noticed that a lot with um, with Coach and tammy and Friday night lights we, we, would, we were always channeling that marriage was very unique. I feel like on television if you were, if you notice over the course of five seasons they never really fucked each other over. They had a very solid relationship, and um my parents had a very um, solid relationship, too, which I always worried I wasn't going to be a good writer because you're supposed to come from damage. But, um, but you know, so I, I think a lot of times you end up subconsciously channeling your own experiences. And then sometimes you make up a character to get back at somebody or <laughs> or, an, or an incident.
4: When we were on, on How I Met Your Mother, there was a lot of, like, uh, sharing dating stories in the room. It, it's, that's about 90% of being a TV writer. And... Uh, and Somebody was talking about this move, this dating move called the naked man, which I, I, I mean, it is Gone. what it sounds like. The girl goes to like you know, do her hair in the bathroom, comes out, and the guy's sitting there naked on the couch. So that was the the story that we were going to do, and I picked that moment very unwisely to go to the kitchen and get some snacks. <laughs> <laughs> and I came back, and there were four gross, lumpy writers, shirtless, on the couch <laughs> when I walked in. So yeah, I feel like uh, yeah, there is a there's a line that you shouldn't cross between fiction and reality.
3: Uh, you know, I, I was talking to Natalie Morales on the set of The Middleman uh, about the story with her boyfriend, and the, and and the actor who played the boyfriend was there, and and he was asking me some questions about it. And he said, well, you know, and I, and I finally just said, look, the character is, your character is basically me on my best day. You know, he's me on the day when, when everything comes out witty and funny and all that. And then Natalie goes like, but that's also my character. And I'm like, yeah, pretty much. You're both, uh, yeah, you know. And then she goes like, but, but our characters are having sex. And I'm like,
1: huh.
3: <laughs> Would that my self-esteem were that healthy? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, when you include something in a script that's drawn from real life experiences, do you sort of warn loved ones? Like, what is that conversation like?
4: I I don't know. I'm I'm struggling with this a little bit right now because I did include. I I like I said I have a family member who's on the spectrum and and he's younger and so I'm like um, protective of him in his sort of. But there is one speech in the show in eight episodes. That is very specifically him, and I'm I'm struggling with what to do. If I, do I give my family members a heads up, or it, it's tricky when it's when it's straight up comedy. I don't usually, and everybody is so self involved they don't even really notice. But uh, <laughs> but but with it, I, this one, this one's stumping me a little bit. It, I think Air
3: on the side of warning them too much.
1: Yeah, right. maybe. Have, have loved ones ever gotten upset with you over something you've put into a script?
5: No one's ever gotten upset. Um, a lot of times they, they kind of like it. I mean, I have young boys who recently discovered, was like, wow, you've been writing for a long time, Dad. It's like, <laughs> look at this show. You were on the show. I said, yeah. And they see a storyline and, and um, or, or a reference that, that they recognize, and they're happy about it. And no one's ever gotten upset with me. How about you?
2: I You know, I always consider, like, um, exes totally fair game. Like, that is, like, you, I can, like, include it all day long and don't ever feel bad. Um, <laughs> I did on casual. We I, So I had a... I, I was writing on casual. It was casual first season, and I think we were, like... We'd written an episode, and, and then we had rebroken the one before, so we were rebreaking that one. Anyway, we were trying to think of kind of a storyline quickly, and I had just had an incident, um, an incident with my wife. We were engaged at the time. We'd gotten in, like, some dumb fight about something. Um, I was in the wrong, but, uh, when she walked to take the trash out, which is a nice thing to do, I don't know why I just, she like walked out the door and I just locked it. Like I just like (laughs) locked the front door like a maniac. And I was just like, and then I did it. And then once you've locked somebody out of the house, it's really hard to unlock the door to let them back in because now what you've done is like so egregious that unlocking the door seems like almost scary um, because you have to explain why you locked the door in the first place, but you really can't. So anyway. We'd gotten through that personally, but then I pitched, I told the story in the room. I was like, you know, it'd be funny. I was like, maybe Valerie should like lock Drew, you know. I had this thing. Anyway, next thing you know, we were doing a story on casual where Valerie locks Drew in the garage and then doesn't let him out for pretty much the whole day. It was and like so a he, two
3: episode arc. I remember it that. Was, yeah, yeah it,
2: it, I mean, like, we took our time. Um, so anyway, I did feel like I had to come home and be like, I told a funny story. You know, it was so hilarious, you know, and she was a good sport about it, but it definitely, it's in a writer's room, it is, um, I feel like there it is a challenge with spouses because you I mean you know more about you know you you I don't know how to say it like you know people in a certain way in a writer's room that you don't always you wouldn't necessarily know them in real life and like when you have to go to the wrap party and like everyone's spouses come it's almost like awkward like you don't know what to talk about because you're like wait a minute do they know that about this person like I know that about this person but I don't think that Vegas story was supposed to be like public knowledge so you know like whatever it is you're kind of like you're just trying to kind of figure it out so in a writer's room you're so open and like I said you're so exposing the vulnerabilities in all aspects of your life your own and you know your spouse gets dragged into that so it's um so you definitely um you know you have to kind of I don't know I guess negotiate that line but the whole idea of a writer's room is that it's a very safe place to talk about kind of your you know deepest darkest thoughts and feelings and and then what comes out of that or 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 maybe your your scariest things or the most insane inappropriate things you've done like lock somebody out of the house
1: is there a line you draw that you wouldn't put into a script uh in terms of something from your life or you're like that's just too far
3: yeah.
2: Well, we wouldn't say it here. No,
3: but, uh, but I'll I'll, t- I'll tell you a story because it's interesting um when when I was early in my dating life and I was you know there was that time in college and and, uh, and, and I had this, this fight with a, with a girlfriend that I was having about whether we could shower together, you know? And that was like a whole thing. Were going to shower together or not? What right. was nah, your
4: nah,
2: stance? Nah, nah, nah. Yeah, what side are you Pro on? Pro shower together?
3: Totally! Come on! <laughs> don't you want to shower with a naked person? That's not you. It's the best thing ever. It What's actually makes being naked <laughs> with yourself better. Um, What's her, so, what was her argument? <laughs> uh, intimacy issues, all sorts <laughs> of crap. Anyway, so the point is she told the story to somebody who had a cartoon in the school paper and uh, and then uh, and then the next time I go see her, um, I, she shows me the the, the, the Ohio, what was it it's Ohio' state the Ohio State uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> a school newspaper, and there's a, a really cute cartoon about a boyfriend and girlfriend were having an argument about whether they should shower together. and then and then the, 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 the girlfriend's like, "Well, I don't want to shower together, but I have, a, I have an idea." And then the next panel is that they're both brushing each other's teeth. and it was just so delightful and such a funny romantic comedy moment, and I felt like so violated by that, that like I, because she still wouldn't shower with me, um, so it was and literally like I just so so I think that there's. You ha- you know, you bring you bring that, that experience into the writers room, but I feel like you have a moral obligation to throw as much dirt on it as you can because th- there's there's the fla- there's the the seed of what you feel emotionally would tell a really great story about how about a universal situation, but then you've got like ten other people in the writers room who will help you turn it into something that isn't going to make someone out in the world feel violated. And frankly, uh, you know, like like our, it, that early experience was so, and, and it must seem very trivial right now. But even as I say it, I can I I feel that welling up of oh my god you use that you know, and I think early enough in my career I named enough dead people after ex girlfriends and got enough shit for it that like I just decided we, we have a moral obligation to not do this you know, and don't name dead people after ex girlfriends whatever you do just don't do it it's not worth it.
1: Is there anything any of you put into a script you ended up regretting?
2: No. <laughs> I don't think so. Not not, not for that reason. <laughs> I mean, there are plenty of things I just regret. I'm like, ooh.
3: I regret most of my work on Sequest, but none of it was personal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, David, I want to talk to you about Game of Silence. Um, this is A lot of that was sort of uh, uh, drew on your own experiences with defending the Boy Scouts of America in sexual assault cases. But while you had your own experience, you also talked with other people and looked to... Uh, Like sort of a panel of experts, right?
5: Right. So, uh, Game of Silence was um, was based on a Turkish show, Um, and it was you know the point in my career where I decided I wanted to be the guy that did um, a drama about prison rape, um, which I thought TV needed, Uh, and so but. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I had, in my former life as a lawyer, I had represented the Boy Scouts of America, who often got sued for failing to supervise Scoutmasters that were alleged to have molested um, Boy Scouts. And it was a year and a half experience that was incredibly depressing, sitting in depositions um, uh, or in the courtroom listening to this testimony about these horrible things people would do, some of it true, some of it untrue. And it really affected me. I had small boys at the time to the point where they would come home from preschool and if something was even slightly off, I would say, oh, something's happening at the school. It, but but so it gave this is a way of saying that when I decided to do the show, I wanted to talk about child sexual abuse in a very real, um, in a very very accurate way and we spoke to a lot of experts we had psychiatrists and counselors come into the writer's room and talk to us about the effects and what it does to people um just so we could tell the story you know honestly and accurately and um and it was uh i think it was kind of cathartic i have to say you know having after having spent all those years um listening to these terrible boy scout stories
1: Cathartic is the word of the panel. it, seems like it. it should be a drinking game. It seems uh, like it. <laughs> <laughs> if you
5: experience
3: actual cathartic catharsis, drink twice. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I'm curious. I've always been sort of curious about this. But if a friend were to tell you a story that you ended up liking or wanting to, to draw from, what are sort of the rules there?
5: Take it and use yeah, it. And yeah, go with just it take it. And tell it. Anna fricky Is Anna Fricky You're not in here, are you?
2: <laughs> Anna. Anna Fricky
5: used to have the best stories, and we would often use them. Um, can I tell this story? Maybe I can. Yes. I'm speaking I
2: on behalf of Anna. You definitely can.
5: <laughs> I, well, now, I don't, I don't know if I can. This wasn't Anna. This was somebody else. Friend um, of a friend. Friend um, of a friend. Did cover. Uh, her maid found her vibrator. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we did a story on Everwood where the little girl Delia comes home one day and finds her um, her stepmother's vibrator. <laughs> Because what else is good drama than that? And uh, and we did that story on the show, and it was supposed to be about you know her coming of age. It was mortifying. She she found it on set, and she thought it was a microphone. The actress, and she was you know like dancing and singing into the vibrator. She took the uh, vibrator in to set. Now. Yes. Well, we had no, a It was a prop vibrator. It was a prop vibrator. I'm sorry. I, I had a whole other thing. I don't know. So anyway, yes, um, other people's stories are fair game, I think.
2: Josh Ream's a writer, showrunner. He has a story that he still has not written. Like, literally, I've been holding on to this story for 10 years, and I'm about to be like, if you do not use it in the next year, I'm putting it as, like, a cold open of a procedural. But then I'd have to write a procedural, so maybe not. But I I do feel like there's, you know, I I feel like you kind of can take it and twist it. If someone tells a story in the writer's room, that's fair game. I think it, and I think it's, if you hear a story from someone who's not a writer, certainly take it and use it. Sometimes, sometimes, obviously, but sometimes if it's a writer, maybe I feel a little like
3: there wouldn't be television without friend of a friend stories. There would not be television. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's sixty five percent of what's talked about in the writers' room. You know,
2: and they're probably just talking about themselves that don't want to
4: say it. This friend oh, yes. of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, this made me think of it. I don't know if it's a direct answer to this question specifically, but I did one time we were it was in, at how i met mother again we were talking about um pets childhood pets and uh, there was some storyline about someone's dog died or whatever and i was i was i told a story about my childhood pet and the insane lie that my parents told me when they had when, after after the dog bit our neighbor and they they had the dog put to sleep but they told us that he became a guard dog at a factory <laughs> <laughs> And to me, it was just kind of fun, but it took me a really long time to figure out. Like, I was in college before I realized what had actually happened to Bunny. Well, like, what happened? <laughs> and apparently, we asked... It was a go- chihuahua, wasn't it? <laughs> no, it wasn't, but uh, they didn't make the fake factory far enough away it was we were in Connecticut and the factory was in New Jersey so we kept asking to visit so then my mom created this elaborate death for the dog where he saved the factory but got shot by gunmen. like like it it was like a bizarre tale and I was telling this story in the room and it was all funny and fun and it got in the show and it was whatever and then uh I, I told my mom and she just, she just like went pale. And she was so upset that I used this story. And it was like a real, like, I was over it. But she she, like, she tried her best. And she just, she just, like, really, I was like, I still don't get how a bloody death at the hands of armed gunmen is better than just, you know, I don't know, you went to a farm or something. But, but it really, it was like one of those moments where I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't foresee that this would have, uh, this would hurt her feelings a little bit.
1: Uh, now, it's not just about creating stories that are inspired by your own life, but sometimes being assigned a story that just by happenstance mirrors your own life. Uh, can, d- do any of you have one of those experiences?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, when when uh, when I worked on the first season of Lost, um, I was given the story of the Korean couple, um, and uh, and you know they, that would, they, it it's not, wasn't outside of the realm of my competence to write that story, but it was certainly nothing I was familiar with. And, um, and I struggled with it a lot because, you know, I mean, look, there, there, there was already, you know, a lot of talk about the Jin character and, 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 and all of that and whether he was stereotypical or not and whether that relationship was sexist or not and all this other stuff. And, and what I wound up sort of chan- like, and, and I really just had a hard time empathizing with them because they, the language barrier made them feel very alien, even though I really was a huge supporter of them having so much of their story being Korean because, to have a primetime show where 30% of it was in subtitled Korean was a pretty great thing at the time. Um, and then, and, and, and as I got to thinking about it, what, what I wound up coming up to was really touching into the memory of what it was like for me coming to the United States at the age of 10 and not having English be my first language. And, um, and you know, whether that story works or not, the the in that episode and then in subsequent episodes that I got to write about those characters, the the any scene where you see Jen sort of uh, the the uh, Daniel Day Kim's character struggling with not being understood, and there's one specifically where everybody's sort of yelling at him, and 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 it's sort of done in a very kind of expressionistic way, and that is like pretty much a snapshot of my brain at age ten, moving from you know Puerto Rico to Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, and and of that just horrific feeling of inadequacy that that you cannot be seen or heard or understood, and that others don't, and that Everybody else is sort of clickly clacking at you. I mean, that, that is very specifically that. And it's a story that, wouldn't, that I wouldn't write in any way other than being assigned a story about a, a Korean couple where the wife is the daughter of a gangster uh, guy. <laughs> so you know. so it was a really weird way that, that that part of my life came out in television that you can see that in no way has anything to do with my life at all.
1: Anybody else get a storyline by happenstance?
2: I really don't know. I feel like whatever story you get, I mean, it obviously it depends whether it's your show or you're on somebody else's show, but but you find a way to infuse your uniqueness into it. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't know. It's make it kind of specific, and you know, it's like I I can shoehorn like Frito Lay bean dip into like anything I write, probably if I work hard enough. You know, whatever whatever your thing is. And
1: it's not just you as writers that are tied to the material, but do you find that members of the cast or crew share their own experiences with you that end up playing into your shows?
4: You know, we, uh, we had such a great crew on the this show that I it, it just did um, for Netflix, and several of the people on our crew had kids on the spectrum or kids with special needs, and it was so cool. Some of them, like, left jobs to come work on the show because they because the subject matter was was so close to them and that was sort of awesome and so yeah we had a lot of that uh, on atypical just people coming in and you know someone uh, our um, our prop master was has a son on the spectrum and she would she would catch things she would be like that this seems a little off or whatever and it was great I mean we had a, a consultant also but it was we we really did use the like the person power that we had.
5: Yes, I think different. I mean, different people run their shows in different ways. But I, I on Game of Silence in particular, but in other sh- in other shows too, um, I like to invite the actors to come into the writers' room at the beginning of the season um, and just you know just to sit down and talk. And it on on Game of Silence, there's an actor named Michael Raymond James who understood his character from the get-go, and he came in and he talked to us with such passion about this character that he literally, it, it poured out of him. At one point he said, I see Gill as a hurricane. He could go left, he could go right, you never know. And we took that in the writer's room. We actually wrote an episode and called it Hurricane Gill." So I've always encouraged um, the actors to, you, you know, you want, you want to be a little bit careful. You don't want them to, you know, you're, you're still creating the character for them. But I feel like you can get so much more out of a character if you do it in partnership. Um, with the actors and and they will they'll pitch stories all the time say this happened to me um sometimes you use them I mean sometimes they're better the shit we had that's for sure you know when I when I first heard the middleman
3: pilot it was 1998 and I just figured the the main character Wendy Watson was was going to be a white girl from from Iowa and that's what I wrote and uh and then I was sort of forced by the network to cast a Latina in it uh against my strenuous objections um it, seriously, because, because I didn't want to write rice and beans and papi and somebody who breaks into Spanish whenever they get angry because, as you know, we Latinos lose control of our language skills when we're angry. You know, that happens a lot. Um, so, you know, so I was very opposed to it, and the network, you know, and I finally made a deal that as long as I... I said, I will cast any color you like as long as I don't have to change a line of dialogue yeah. in the pilot. And, but what happened was, as I got to know Natalie... And she's Cuban, and she's from, from Florida, and she has that whole background. That, you know, like, like basically, I just sort of started working some of my own lat- latino into it. But then a lot of it was also hers, because I'm not Cuban, and I'm not from Miami. So I just figured, okay, well, I guess she's from Miami. <laughs> and then, you know, Natalie would tell me a little bit about her family and, and so forth. And then that would start kind of weaving its way in, because um, she, you know, we, we, we... I did not intend for the character to be that, and we cast somebody who was that... And, you know, and I'm sure that if she had been any other thing, I would have probably talked to the actor about their experience and put that in there so that it would have been comfortable for them to play that, you know?
1: Uh, Well, now I want to turn it over to you guys. Uh, Does anybody in the audience
2: have any questions? You can ask Anna Fricky about her vibrators.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You you know, uh, in apropos of the sir, the one thing (laughs) I, I find is that, like, there are stories that you don't want to necessarily tell, and then, like, you tell them, and then you find out that, like, nine people have had the same thing happen to them. You know, like, um, I accidentally drugged the housekeeper. Um,
1: Sorry, what? Medical
3: marijuana is legal in California, first of all, so (laughs) do not judge me. I suffer from anxiety, and I've had multiple spinal surgeries. Um, But also, uh, so, you know, so I had these little candies in my fridge, and usually I would take the bag, and I would write, do not eat in Spanish, on it to make sure that you know and the one time I didn't she grabbed like an entire it's this thing called a chiba chew it's about this big and literally a fourth of it is enough to put me down for like 24 hours you know and she ate the whole thing and my wife calls me and she's like oh the housekeeper I think she's having a heart attack and I'm like what's going on she's like she's 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 lying on the couch she says she can't feel her hands um <laughs> and I'm like and I'm like uh honey go to the fridge and count the chiba chews and she's like what are you talking about I'm like it's the medical marijuana in the fridge and so, so I was really ashamed of this because, I mean, you look, you, you want to label your drugs accurately so you don't accidentally drug anybody, much less a 65-year-old immigrant with limited language skills, um, you know, uh, but, but what winds up what was happening is I told the story in the writer's room, and it turned out it happened to, like, four other people. <laughs> So there's a whole rash of people accidentally drugging people who work in their homes, you know? Um, and I haven't used this story in anywhere, but it's one of those things where, like, you think this is a very embarrassing thing that happened that, you know, and, and then you find out that there's probably a lot more loose Hitachi, Hitachi Magic One vibrator stories out there than you think, you know? And part of, like, being able to have that level of honesty in the writer's room is that you find out, oh, okay, I'm not alone in being a complete and utter fucking idiot, you know? Which is nice to know.
1: Uh, yeah, right back there.
3: Uh, Whose who's story was it about how the catch came along? I mean, who who took credit for it that day?
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, I read the book. Okay. I, don't, I don't remember who's, who uh, specifically, but... I think it
1: was the day
3: when the hawk went off and, you know, kind of had to take some space some time, and time. Yeah, no, I, I actually think that, that story has been pretty free of hagiography. Hey um, but basically what happened on that was that... So my my first day at Lost was my second day at Lost was the day that Damon and JJ finished the first draft of the pilot, in which Jack dies in the first fifteen pages. So I was there from the very beginning. So, um and and JJ wanted the hatch from Jump Street. He wanted the hatch in episode one, and he's like, and they find a hatch, and Damon would be like, what's in the hatch, and JJ would be like, magic box.
2: (laughs) JJ pitched us a magic box, and what about Brian too? Not kidding. Jesus Christ.
3: Brian's manuscript, isn't it? When all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a magic box. Anyway, um... And Damon, to his great credit, was like, I'm not putting anything, like, you know, and and, to, and and again, this also speaks to the, oh, they're just making it all up as they went. Damon, to his great credit, said, I'm not putting anything on screen that I don't know what it's going to pay off in the future, you know? So we always had a working hypothesis of what everything was. And then, like, around we were breaking our episode eight, Damon came in and said, there's a there's a guy in the hatch, and if he doesn't push a button every 108 minutes, the world will end. And then the hatch wound up in episode 10. But, you know, like, like in apropos of the whole writers' room thing, so that was sort of an invitation for everyone in the writer's room to pitch ideas about what this thing could be. And it took months. I mean, we were, but we just kept bringing stuff in, and eventually he hit on the thing he wanted. Um, and that's sort of, and, and you know, I think what the story that we would all tell about the good writer's rooms we've been in is that because not just our conceptual stuff that we bring in that, you know, you go in a writer's room, you're being paid to bring in all your million dollar ideas, regardless of whether you want to write a spec feature about them. You have to come in. and And the one thing about the lost writer's room that was so special and magical and amazing was that Because of the pressure, because of how the show was developed, because of what it was, you know, Damon was basically coming in every day and he would basically grab a machete, rip open his his torso and say like, all right, there's the show, guys. And we'd be like, "Okay," (laughs) you know, it was very raw and very like because it was done so quickly. We really were writing from the heart on that show. And, and, And I think a good writer's room is a room where people can do that safely. You know, and where you're encouraged to do that, but you also feel like what's going to wind up on the screen isn't going to be a betrayal of your trust. Does that sound appropriate? A thousand
4: percent. Yeah, I think it's really important to tell personal stories in the writers' room, and if you don't, you're not doing it right. I think people just share so much, and it's hilarious, and it's sad, and it's uh, yeah, and so you get close really quick. Uh, right in the back there. Yeah, no, that's you.
1: You don't have to turn around. You. Oh, 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 uh, it's actually behind you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, Sorry. There,
3: there's, there's, there's one guy in the back there who's wearing a black shirt, so he's blending into the thing whose hand was actually up before anybody else, so we should probably talk to him later. Not now, because you're up, but that guy.
2: I mean, I think in marketing, uh, I mean, I, I, I can't like speak that much to marketing, but I would imagine that you're, you're looking at a show and you're looking for any hook that's going to get people to watch, PR, marketing. Um, and so when someone's when, talking about your personal connection to the subject matter is going to resonate you know, I'm sure that you're doing that right now as you're talking about the show. When I did Life Unexpected, it was, I mean, I must have told the story that I thought Nancy Reagan was my birth mom like a hundred times because it was like, oh, talk about that. You know, on Casual, the biggest question that Xander Laming gets asked who created the show is like, where did this come from? And he talks about his... Um, not anywhere near as codependent relationship <laughs> as on Casual, but he and his sister were very close. They were roommates. They lived together, and she started dating his best friend, and that was kind of the impetus um, for him writing the show, and obviously it's, evol- it's evolved into something very um, fictitious, but you know, certainly when we go out and we promote the show and we talk about it, that's one of the b- biggest things he's asked and one of the biggest things you know we collectively talk about. So I think any personal connection... Um, makes it more marketable. Is that kind of, I don't know if that's exactly.
5: One of the things we found on Parenthood um, was people tended to, to, or I, I say we found, I guess the researchers or the network or NBC or somebody discovered was that a lot of people would come to the show and watch it uh, because they felt like they wanted the Bravermans as their own family. So you start, you know, and that wasn't like an intentional personal story we were telling. It's just the way the show was happening, the way it was being written. But the network really took that and used it. I mean, I can remember even some of the promos and commercials for the show. It's like, spend time with the Bravermans, the family that, you know, whatever. <laughs> and it became, and it became you know, this wish fulfillment thing um, that that we sort of wrote into. And, it, you know, it makes me think it, your show is so interesting to me because Max Braverman on, on Parenthood, it, going back to your early question, I do remember I would have a little bit of trepidation writing those storylines because I don't have a personal experience. And, and Max was on the spectrum in the show. I don't have a personal experience with that. So every time I got a Max story... I felt some added pressure to get it right. And I didn't want to offend anybody. I was so
4: mad at myself when I came up with the idea. I was like, God damn it. This is going to be so hard. (laughs) It was so hard. I had to do so much research. Because I do have a little bit of personal experience, but not that age group. And so yeah, I get it. I also I totally, I just got a text the other day from a friend who said that her 11-year-old daughter just finished all four seasons of The Goldbergs and was crying because it was done. And she was like, "Are there more seasons coming out?" And I, I texted, "Yes, there are." And she said that she thinks that her daughter wants that family. That's why she. That's why she likes the show because she wants that Who family. Who doesn't want Bev? I know that mom is awesome. <laughs> but I, I think there's something. Um, it's funny because I feel like as the more specific you get with these stories and these jokes and these characters, the more relatable it is in a in a really interesting and surprising way. The the the, the, the tiny tiny story of a um of a 18 year old boy looking for love on the autism spectrum for me is su- it's such a it's such a relatable thing and it's so specific but it is about like you know looking for love and feeling weird and not knowing how to be a normal person sometimes which i i feel a lot <laughs>
3: Where I, is he I, what oh. I was going to say, I think, I think in apropos of, of a lot of what we're talking, oh, the, the, he's like way in the back there. It's, yeah, that guy. He's, he's, but he's wearing black, so like you can't see him. No, but what I was going to say, just champion. Say, yeah, I, I don't know. I wear a lot of black. I don't get seen a lot. Uh, well, hold on, but I was. Uh, I, 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 I don't ask your question. I, I'll go ahead.
4: Yeah, I once wrote a uh, movie called uh, you've never seen it, it never went anywhere, but it was called Werewife and it was when I was uh, engaged and the and you know I'm been married uh, it's our 9 year anniversary uh, not today but this is our around now and I uh, and but and I never had a second of doubt about my husband or whatever it was it was we've been together a long time but it was still a transition, and I was writing this this screenplay, and I didn't realize what I was doing. But I, I, and I was excited about getting married. But I was writing about, you know, she 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 gets bitten by a werewolf on her honeymoon and becomes a different person. And obviously, the the movie was about this fear of like becoming dif- a different person when you when you get married, like losing your identity or whatever. But it was also the the idea was cooked from the like. Uh, the the solidness I felt in my own relationship. Like one time I was on the porch with my husband and I was like, if I turned into a werewolf, werewolf, what would you do? He's like, I would just build a big cage. (laughs) And and that's what happened in the movie. And and so in, in some ways that movie came from my anxiety about being a different person. But in some ways it came from this foundation of a real strong relationship and just wanting to see that.
5: I I, I, that's a great question. I love stories about joy and um, I don't know why just because they're they're exciting and they're fun to write and they're fun to shoot and actors get excited when they see a story on Friday Night Lights. I remember we were we were maybe I don't know 18 episodes into the first season. We were tackling all these issues like racism and and it it was getting very sort of heavy. And one day Patrick Massett came into the room and he said, why don't we do a story about the joy of the game? You know what football really is, and it became an episode called Mud Bowl, where um, the team went out and played a game in the middle of a field because they didn't. I forget. I forget what the setup was, but it became literally the episode was about the joy of the game and playing football. And we shot it in the field, and we had the big rain cranes, and everybody had a great time. And I've always loved that story. And so on a on a larger scale, that was a story about joy. But then even the smaller moments. And look, every family, family drama has the the birth you know, the birth of the, of, and so we had, you know, we did stories where, I mean, you know, Tammy had a baby. Uh, I'm sure there were babies born on parenthood. I can't remember, but even those, those small moments of joy too. I just, I always, you know, I always thought they were really fun to do.
4: One of my favorite things that we've got to do on, uh, on a was, uh, the 16 year old girl. I get to show her falling in love And it was so fun to, like, do just, I mean, it's super uncomplicated, like, just moments of that first love for, it was very joyous. And that stuff is really fun to write. Right here. Um, You guys
0: have shared a lot of useful lessons and tips. And uh, as a new writer, Javier, I really enjoyed Children
3: of Standed Podcast. God bless you, sir. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh,
4: Well, definitely write a lot. Writing a lot helps you become a better writer. And give yourself deadlines. I, I feel like writers need deadlines. So just on a practical level, write a lot and, and have somebody give you a deadline or you know, a friend or if you're super strict with yourself, give your give your own deadline. But I'd say writing and deadlines is helpful.
3: I think in apropos of a lot of what we're talking about in this panel, you need to, especially in a writer's room, you need to realize that a lot of the time the real magic isn't because you've had a story that you think is so unique to you that, it's, that, that, that it has to be told. When you create a show or when you're writing on a show, it's very easy to get attached to things and to not realize that the real magic happens in the collaboration of it. You know, you bring in the story of how you locked the door or how you drugged the, the, that poor woman or whatever the hell it is or how you lost your Hitachi magic wand, and it's not... I love
2: that it's become a Hitachi. <laughs>
3: They're all Hitachi magic. It's the the one that looks like a microphone. It's always a Hitachi magic one. Um, In the immortal words of Samantha Jones, be careful with that. It'll burn your thing off. I mean, Um, I
2: know it's a Hitachi.
3: (laughs) Um, But um, the the magic doesn't happen because something funny happened to you. The magic happens because you bring it into the world and other people embellish it. Other people make it better. And the magic stops when you become so attached to whatever it is that you forget that you are in the cat skinning business. You know, and and the piece of advice that I give to every writer is know your theme and know how to express your theme a billion different ways. And your theme can change over the course of your life. I know that mine has, but it's it's not, oh, this happened to me, I must write it, and if I don't render it exactly how it happened to me it's never going to be good it's this happened to me and then other people help you make it more universal and uh, when you go work on shows it's all it's like you figure out how to tell the story of the hitachi magic wand in the context of law and order in the context of star trek in the context of the x-files in the context of fargo you know if hitachi magic wand is your theme you're going to write about the magic wand but the question is you're not just going to work on Hitachi the motion picture you're going to work on a bunch of different shows and how do you bring that into every show and help what that show is what the vision is of its creator and all the other people you work with turn it into something that's universal that's the real magic attachment to your um, your need to express only one thing is is the key to insanity and that's when you meet people who've been working on the same script for 20 years you know
4: also tv writing is so cool and so different and weirdly, there's not a lot of times there's not a lot of writing. <laughs> it's you do a lot of like sitting in rooms, breaking stories. I, I, uh, I went to a party once early on in my career, and uh, my friend was like, "Oh my, my friend is here, and she really wants to be a TV writer. Would you would you talk to her about it?" And so, so I, I thought I was doing such a nice thing, and I sat down with her, and I went through the whole process. Like, this is, first we, first we come up with that, we sit around, and we come up with an idea, and then we write, we write the beats and, on the board, and then we outline, somebody goes off, whole thing. It maybe took me 10 minutes. And then she, she waits a second, and she looks at me, and she goes, oh... So you're not really a writer. <laughs> like, no, that's how it, that's how it works. But it is. It's such a collaborative process. It's not screenwriting. It's not you're, sitting. You're more like a
2: person who's really focused on lunch.
4: Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Like um, you are not. You know, and I. My first job was on Will and Grace. And it was 24 episodes. The last season, it was 24 episodes. And I wrote one, so I spent one week actually writing a script, and then the rest of the time I was in the room pitching jokes or you know. And it, so it is a different kind. It's a different beast. It, it's almost simplistic to call it ri- writing because. And the plus side of that is you get to produce it too. You you write it, and then sometimes three days later you're shooting the thing that you just wrote. And you're like, does it happen so quickly? Um, so yeah, it is. It's just a different. It's a different kind of thing. I think
2: also um, the my best advice is probably well two things. One in a room like take the ball that someone's throwing. Like if you're in a writer's room, nothing is worse than like throwing a ball that no one catches. People are like, eh. <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, like <laughs> so. I always feel like just pass the ball around, like take it and take a kernel of what somebody said, even if what they said isn't perfect or you don't want to do all of it. Like, don't be so literal about it. Just kind of take the spirit of it and keep going. And like, it's almost like hot potato and you're like passing the idea around and it's just getting better and kind of gaining momentum. And then the other thing is, if you want to write, take notes defenselessly, which is really, really hard to do, like literally not even kidding, probably a week ago, I gave a script to my wife to read and she literally said, this feels like a zany multicam. And I was like, what? Um, And she was like, like, I expected it to be more high end. And I was like, what? And then I like laid in bed in a panic, sobbing. Um, And then I was like, well, I guess I have fucking a lot of work to do and then did it. And I gave it to someone else who had similar feedback. And then I was like, well, I guess I have even more work to do. So it's like even, it doesn't matter how many pilots you've written, how many shows you've been on. Like getting notes sucks. And it's painful. And you need them. And the best thing you can do is not argue with them. And just take them, and that's what I've been doing for the last week. And the script is in much better shape now. Um, so, and it feels good. But I think I think it's really hard when you get notes. Um, your first inclination is to defend and explain, um, but don't do any of that. Just listen, take it, and go do them. That's it. It's going to get better if you do that.
4: Along the same lines, too, in terms of the writers' room, never be the person who just pitches a problem. If you pitch a problem, if you see a problem in a story, make sure you have a solution before you open your mouth because everybody sees the problem. Yeah.
5: I I don't know if this is where your question was due. My my advice is uh, on a very practical level, and whenever I talk to people who ask about how do I break into the TV business, I always say two things. Number one, if you're serious about it, you're going to have to come to L.A., this is for television I'm talking about, not features. Um, and number two I always encourage and say, look, you gotta have a good spec, you gotta have a calling card, you gotta have a sample, and it takes time and it takes effort to sit down and write a spec episode of a television show. But when I'm hiring, I can't make a judgment about somebody's ability to write unless I can look at a spec episode of a show and make a judgment as to whether or not they understand structure and character. And this is what the show sounds like. So on a very practical level, I think the best thing you can do is you know, pick your, pick your show that you love, write an episode of it that is fantastic and that is reflective of your voice. Um and then do it a second time. Mm-hmm. So if somebody gets interested in you and they read your first script and they say, Wow, this this writer seems interesting, what else you got? You know, then you get a meeting, then you go in and you charm them with yourself and and uh and you're off to the races. And and a third
3: and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth. Yeah. Because you won't be right, good right, at it right. until you write the seventh.
5: Right.
4: Mm-hmm. Well uh, and I would also say true. have a have a have a spec and have an original piece of material too, because everybody likes to read different stuff. Some that's people true. won't read specs and some people, you know. So I would say make sure you have
3: a variety: yeah and, and, and look, whatever piece of advice you choose to take, the, only, the, the, the one that matters most is that you never stop writing. Yes. you know it is, it is literally the lifeblood of everything we do is to be entrepreneurial. We need to sell pilots, we need to write scripts, we need to like and it just you literally just write and write and write until you die. and that's by the way, that's <laughs> the good version. you were lucky. Hopefully we will all, I mean, you know, like people say, how do you want to die? I'm like, at my desk. That's how I want to die. You know, I don't want to die surrounded by happy people in a haze of morphine with some tumor eating my brain. I want to have a heart attack while I'm writing uh, the next kick-ass action sequence I got to do, you know? And, 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 you just, and you just have to embrace the fact that there is no million-dollar script. There is no, I mean, maybe there will be, but it'll be one of 20, you know, you just keep writing because the, especially, and what that does, it prepares you for the writer's room because the iterative nat- nature of improvement in writing is what, it, just like in life, is what it's about. You know, you write your first draft, it sucks, it's it's a zany four camera, which uh, it, you know, and then uh, unless you're writing a zany four camera, in which case, great, you won. Um, and then and then you just keep, and the next draft gets better. than F then you leave that project, you go to the next project, and you get better. You know. So so, regardless of what level of success you have, if you stop writing or if you only write when you have to, you stop growing.
4: One of my favorite um, qualities in a TV writer is the ability to pivot. They, they pitch something and it it doesn't work and they just pitch something else completely different and it's... It's such a great, it, it, it's basically once your soul has been crushed enough, you don't, you don't connect. You're not, you're not as attached. Yeah, you're not attached to anything <laughs> <Or anymore. less. laughs> But um, I think it's important in the writer's room, but it's also important just in writing, is you write something, you get so attached, and then you move on, and you write something else that you love, and you don't get so attached that your feelings are hurt if that, the one you wrote first isn't getting the attention you want. Do Unfortunately,
1: I'm so sorry, Javi, we are all out of time for the panel. Uh, thank you, David, Liz, Rabia, and Javier thank for you joining guys. us today. Thank
2: you guys very much. Thank you.